Hey there, thank you for listening to this episode of the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd. Happy spring, everyone. It's not very springy here today in Illinois, pretty cold and dreary, but good for me to kind of hunker down and finish this episode to share with you. Welcome new listeners. I encourage you to go back through the catalog and pick any topic from any episode that might be of interest to you. Thank you to Patreon supporters. And thank you, those of you who have rated and reviewed this show, probably on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done that, I'd really appreciate it. That'd mean a lot to me. Help me expand the show and reach more people. And there's uh, a few changes to Patreon. Kind of have a pay-what-you-feel set up now. There's three options, five, ten, or $20 pledges, and everybody gets the same thing. So if you're uh, pledging the full amount and you need to reduce your pledge for any reason, I'm grateful that you've contributed and you're welcome to do that. So pick what feels right for you, and then you can access everything. In, in this uh, episode today, there's a guided meditation that I kept at the end, so you can get a taste of what that meditation resource is like through Patreon when you get access to the Kind Mind Studio. It's a membership page on my website. And more importantly, you'll have access to our monthly meetings, Kind Mind Gatherings. And the next one is Tuesday, March 29th. The topic is Accessing Worlds with Concentration. We're going to look at uh, the topic of concentration as a limb in yoga, but also as a way to really cut through layers of perception and understand who we are and be able to derive the spiritual and material benefits of that latent power that we all have. And also these meetings are a way for us to really come together and support each other because these are still really challenging and uncertain times and to then concentrate our energy for healing and uplifting humanity. As soon as you sign up for Patreon, a message will be sent to you with the Zoom invite for the next meeting and then that You'll receive the invitation every month through posts and Patreon. So thank you all for supporting this work. And today, our theme is dreams. I talk about dreams all the time in this show, but I've never really dedicated a whole episode to it. So m many things that I've talked about here probably were touched on in other episodes, but now it's a little bit more organized and more in-depth exploration, I think that it's fascinating that we need to sleep so much throughout life. Now, you think how strange it is that a human being, you can get 16 to 18 hours of life, and then they need to power down and charge for up to eight hours before being active again. Now with these lightning chargers, my iPhone recharges in minutes. And I said in this episode incorrectly that that's like 30 years of dreams if you live to be 100. Of course that's not true because we don't dream the, the whole time we're asleep. So I think it's probably more like 6 to 10 years. But even so, that's so much of life. And that we don't remember so much of it, we lose so much of it, is unfortunate. The point isn't just to remember, but to find meaning in our dreams and to be able to not just discount 
that time. I mean, time is such a precious resource. So whatever we can, however we can optimize our time, both in dreaming and waking, would be ideal. There are so many interpretations of dreams from psychology and spiritual traditions. They include psychoanalytic theory from Freud and Jung about dreams representing unconscious manifestations and desires. Then there's activation synthesis theory popularized in the 70s, postulating that dreams are just byproducts of information and processing and the brain trying to um, integrate signals from the limbic system into memories, emotions, and so on. And then continual activation theory, which is uh, hypothesizing that dreams are just helping us to store memories. It's just another way to integrate all our experiences into our uh, longer-term memory. fMRI studies of brains of mice show activity similar to when they were trying to find cheese in a maze, suggesting that dreams do have a lot to do with learning and integration. But in this episode, we go a lot more deeper, and I I talked about four kinds of dreams, and one of them I said was prophetic, but I think that's a a limiting word. What I really meant in, in that category was precognitive, which includes dreams about prophetic events in the future, but also premonitions or being able to know something before having access to it in the conventional way with your five senses. A few strange facts about dreams. We don't dream about music very much. There was a study at Heidelberg University that tracked the dreams of two or 3,000 participants and found that the general population only has music in their dreams about 6% of the time. This, of course, is higher for musicians. And when I first learned that, I was surprised. But, but being a musician, that's why I'm surprised. And it's also negatively related to age, the frequency of music. So older people tend to have less music in their dreams, probably because younger people have music on more of the time or connecting with music more during their waking life. Opposite to this, you have uh, the frequency of color in dreams versus black and white dreams. And older people tend to have more black and white dreams, but it's uh, estimated that it's probably due to the amount of time that older people watched black and white television, which again reinforces the belief that dreams are reflections of what's going on in our waking life. Otherwise, Why would we dream in black and white? But if you're like me and like most people, themes in our dreams do tend to show up that were going on in the the shows or movies that we're watching. Like when I'm watching a scary series on Netflix, then that that tends to manifest in my dreams. So it, it makes sense that the imprints that we're getting from the media that we're taking in go into our subconscious and affect us on that level, which is why I'm trying to be a lot more disciplined and discerning with what impressions I allow to go into my mind. And when we're watching shows or movies, you're really playing a game of roulette with what you're going to experience on a deeper level, because in some sense that those are memories that you're forming. And And if you struggle with nightmares or anxiety, which is the most common 
emotion in dreams. Many people are surprised to learn that we tend to feel like the anxiety or stress in my dreams says something really deeply about me in particular, but that's actually the most common emotion, which highlights the degree of stress I think that we're exposed to. If you're somebody that struggles with nightmares, I don't get into this too much in the episode, but I would encourage you to explore the art of lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is when a person knows that they're dreaming while still in the dream. So they don't wake up from the dream, but they do wake up in the sense that they become conscious that it's all a hallucination and then can control the dream or direct the the plot or change the plot of a dream. There's many, many different ideas about how to do this, and there are books by author Stephen LeBurge, who has really studied this thoroughly. If you want to learn more, I was into this a lot when I was younger. But a couple things that I think are simple and can work for a lot of people also involve some of the limitations of our dream self. If you've seen the movie Waking Life, there's a scene where they're talking about how you can't turn on the lights in a dream or turn them off. And I think this, this is because something to do with our photoreceptors or our, our, the vision regions of the brain and how they would process brightness and changes to luminosity. So if you try to turn on a light in a dream, it's not going to work or the bulb will flicker, but it won't really change brightness. So the way you can use this to become lucid is anytime you're turning on a light switch, as you're doing so, ask yourself, am I dreaming? And if the light comes on, you'll be able to recognize that it's not a dream. Eventually, this will happen in your dream. And when it, the light doesn't come on, it can trigger the understanding that this isn't, this isn't real in the sense this isn't waking life. Also, it's hard to tell time or impossible to tell time, according to most psychologists, probably because of the lack of the physics of the uh, waking world. So if you look at a clock and ask yourself, am I dreaming? When, when you look at a clock and try to follow time in a dream, it's probably not going to happen, which can trigger lucidity. And this reminds me of Dali's painting, The Persistence of Memory, where you get those melting clocks. It was thought that it was inspired by Einstein's theory of relativity, but is actually, he says, the way a certain type of cheese was melting in the sun. However, it's likely that this image came to Dali in a dream. The surrealist iconography symbolizes the, the passing of time as one would experience it if they were looking at the clocks and trying to see time passing in a dream. Something that helped me to have some lucid dreams when I was younger was back when we needed wristwatches, I'd have a little alert that beeped every hour. And when it did, I would ask myself if I'm dreaming. Now, this is something from the point of view of self-inquiry and spirituality, that we ought to be asking ourselves anyway, what is real? Who am I? Is this a dream? But if we did that with a notification like that, now you could use your phone, eventually these things are going to happen in the dream. And when it does, 
you may find that you are in a dream and can direct it. That so many people say they don't dream or can't recall their dreams makes me think a little differently about anesthesia and how people say, you know, it was total nothingness as evidence to just the voidness of death. But if people are saying nothing happened and brain studies are actually showing, no, you, you were, your mind was active, you were dreaming, it's just that you don't remember it, well then maybe something does happen after, uh, while under anesthesia and we just don't have the, the memory to be able to recall it. There are also differences between the way men and women dream in general. Men tend to have more dreams of men, actually, and women tend to have a more even balance, are more likely to have a balance of genders in their dream. Men are more likely to experience aggression in their dreams, but women are more likely to encounter verbal aggression. Women are more likely to dream about people they know. Men are more likely to dream of strangers. And some psychologists hypothesize that anyone we see in our dream is somebody we have seen in waking life. So there, even though there may be depth of dialogue with a stranger in a dream, that could still be somebody that you passed unknowingly in the grocery store. I'm a little dubious about this, though. Now, some of the evidence for this would be facial recognition going on in a dream with a stranger while performing an MRI, which probably would suggest that even though it's a stranger, the facial recognition region of the brain means that it's not the first time. But to me, well, I, I talk about it in the episode, but I have seen people in my dreams before I meet them, and they end up appearing in real life exactly as they did in the dream, which falls under that precognitive category. So maybe it can happen, but it's rare. So we know that life influences dreams, but dreams also influence life. And not just our life, but the whole of life. For example, two of the greatest scientific minds of the late 19th and 20th century, one being Dmitry Mendeleev, Russian chemist, who was one of more than 10 children. His father was a professor and died when he was 13, and he was not accepted to university at first. He had to make his way all the way to St. Petersburg from Siberia. By 20, he was publishing papers, and at 26, he attended the first international chemistry conference. And he was focused on the periodic table of elements and stuck. And then the whole vision came to him in a dream, and he woke up and wrote it down. You think of how something like this has totally changed the course of humanity and when that dream occurred, how much that has influenced the development of the human race. Srinivasa Ramanujan is another example. He was an impoverished man from southern India with very little education and could also not get into college because he failed in every subject except mathematics. But he's responsible for, I believe, 
more than 4,000 mathematical theorems and proofs. And he would send these to some of the local mathematicians. They were so impressed that they forwarded this correspondence to English mathematician G.H. Hardy at the University of Cambridge, who ultimately was so moved by Ramanujan's work, he found it extraordinary and arranged for him to come and teach at Cambridge. All but a dozen or so of these thousands of works, including the Ramanujan theta function, partition formulae, and mock theta functions, they've inspired so much, including our ability to identify up to 10 trillion decimal points of pi, which he was also obsessed about. Unfortunately, he died at 32 years old, I think from complications with dysentery or another GI infection. But he said that all of these equations came to him from the goddess Namagiri, a form of the Divine Mother Lakshmi, in his dreams. And once expressed that an equation for me has no meaning unless it expresses a thought of God. There's so many other discoveries and inventions, but also masterpieces of art that have shaped culture and the path of humanity, that have crossed the barrier of consciousness and subconsciousness to be brought back into this world. Part of the reason why I titled this episode Dream Stuff You Should Know was because of a lesser-known essay by Stephen Hawking called The Dreams Stuff is Made of. It kind of points to the nature of reality and of matter when you get down subtler than atoms and you get into that space of wavicles or strings or packets of quanta energy or fields. Dreams or magic might be a better word than stuff. So I hope you enjoy this episode and can dream broader and bigger and direct your creativity in this world and that world. Now before I sign off and transition this episode into the talk which was recorded last year in April of 2021, I'll leave you with this message from Jack Kerouac. I have had renewed interest in his work in the last few years. I think it started when my friend January Jones invited me to speak about Zen at the American Writers Museum in Chicago at an exhibit of Jack Kerouac's original scrolls for On the Road. And another friend of mine, Jim Canary, is the steward of this literary treasure and asset through Indiana University in Bloomington, and I believe right now it's on display in Indianapolis, if you'd be interested. But I realized I hadn't really seriously explored Kerouac's work and philosophy and approach since I was much younger, and in between that time I had a lot of experiences with Zen and Buddhism and Hinduism and Vedanta and meditation, and coming back to it, it was a real joy for me, reading On the Road again inspired so much magic for me at this stage of life, but I am still so profoundly impressed with 
the fervor and fearless adventure of someone like Kerouac. It's sort of like Terence McKenna as a psychonaut exploring consciousness with drugs. These luminaries are so different from me, and yet I have a tremendous amount of respect because of the risks that they took. The way Kerouac was able to live on the edge of life is not easy for anybody. In, in a sense, like there, it has its own, I don't know, inverse monastic quality to it that's also something that would be shunned by 99% of society. The risk that someone like Terence McKenna took and you know, probably lost that risk by the end of his life, but not before having some serious breakthroughs, I have respect for that. Anyways, this passage, I think, touches on the magic of dreams and how dreams are really an opportunity to understand who we are, what life is, what consciousness is, what is real. But it's uh, from a letter that he wrote to his first wife, Edie Kerouac Parker, in 1957, I think 10 years after they had separated. And I love this so much, I've probably shared it before on this podcast, which is probably happening a lot more than than I can realize, but after 60 plus episodes, I can't remember everything I've talked about. But here it goes. I have lots of things to teach you now, in case we ever meet, concerning the message that was transmitted to me under a pine tree in North Carolina on a cold winter moonlit night. It said that nothing ever happened, so don't worry, it's all like a dream. Everything is ecstasy inside. We just don't know it because of our thinking minds. But in our true blissful essence of mind is known that everything is all right forever and forever and forever. Close your eyes. Let your hands and nerve ends drop. Stop breathing for three seconds. Listen to the silence inside the illusion of the world and you will remember the lesson you forgot which was taught in immense milky way, soft cloud, innumerable worlds long ago, and not even at all. It is all one vast awakened thing. I call it the golden eternity. It is perfect. We were never really born. We will never really die. It has nothing to do with the imaginary idea of a personal self, other selves, many selves, everywhere. Self is only an idea, a mortal idea. That which passes into everything is one thing. It's a dream already ended. There's nothing to be afraid of and nothing to be glad about. I know this from staring at mountains months on end. They never show any expression. They're like empty space. Do you think the emptiness of space will ever crumble away? Mountains will crumble, but the emptiness of space, which is one universal essence of mind, the vast awakenerhood, empty and awake, will never crumble away because it was never born. The world you see is just a movie in your mind. Rocks don't see it. Bless and sit down, forgive and forget. Practice kindness all day to everybody and you will realize you're already in heaven now. That's the story. That's the message. Nobody understands it. Nobody listens. They're all running around like chickens with heads cut off. I will try to teach it, but it will be in vain. That's why I'll end up in a shack praying and being cool and singing by my wood stove making pancakes. 
Thank you, everybody. I appreciate your support, and I hope to see you soon, maybe at the Kind Mind Gathering on March 29th. I hope you enjoy this episode about dreams. Take care. Dreams are kind of like a side dish to our meal every month. I I think so many talks, we touch on dreams. Then it dawned on me, there hasn't been uh, a meeting or an episode that's, you know, just all in on dreams. And I have some things to share, but I I definitely want to hear from you because dreams are so mysterious. And when we hear the stories of other people's dreams, it starts to open up new dimensions of our own psyche. I I would also like to start out with this question that came on Facebook from Christina, because I think it's a really good one. She wrote, I've been thinking about dreams. Our culture celebrates dreams in a very romantic sense. We may be encouraged to dream. However, our dreams are judged and measured by production and outcome. We encourage people to have dreams, yet discourage the actions necessary to nourish those dreams. Time, space, reflection, play. This paradox, the commoditizing and conceptualizing of dreams, troubles me. To what extent are people measured by the realization of their dreams? I'm often afraid to dream because of this. Why dream of things that I will never accomplish? Seems like a tease. I'm afraid this limiting belief is self-sabotaging. Any advice? Thank you. So I thought that was really insightful, really special. A couple things here. So dreams mean different things. We could be talking about the dreams that we have when we're asleep at night. We can also talk about the dreams that we have when we're awake, the, the dreams for our life, the wishes, the visions, the hopes, the daydreams, so to speak. Now, I think there is some conflict socially and culturally with chasing your dreams. And some of the steps to chase a dream definitely can be taboo. But I want to draw a line. It's not a bright line, but there's a line, I think, between dreaming and dreams and ambitions. Now, in a sense, an ambition is almost like the evidence that we're unhappy in the present moment because it sucks so much of your attention and mental energy to the future and this projected time when you could be fulfilled when you achieve this thing, right? So that's not to convince you not to have an ambition or to have an ambition. It's simply to say that if you don't feel that way, there's nothing wrong with you. You have more of yourself to give to the present moment. And if that is you, with the ambition, then I see your sacrifice. So I think both are needed. You know, people with intense ambitions often generate ideas and inventions that change things, you know, in different ways, but but often in, in new and positive ways. And there are other people that don't live that way, that connect more with the present moment. They may, may be more in the flow of life. So. For me, I back up from ambition and I keep it more aspiration. 
That's where I draw the line. I feel like aspiration with my dreams. I want to move with the river of life. The river obviously is aspiring to go to the ocean or to a bigger river. But if it has to go backwards, <laughs> it can go backwards, you know. It has to work around these obstacles. And sometimes it'll be slow and sometimes there'll be rapids. And that's all right. That's what feels right for me. We can explore that a little bit more. Now, the dreams that we have at night, for a while, I, I don't even know that I really remembered many dreams as a kid. Nothing stands out to me too much when I just think generally about my childhood time asleep. But when I was about 20 years old, and I think I've told this story to some of you before, but I was in a pretty serious relationship, I guess, like a couple years maybe. Me and my girlfriend were apart for at least a month or more, maybe a couple months. It was like summer between school years and college. And there wasn't good communication between us, not because we didn't want to communicate, but she was staying at a cabin with, uh, this was before we had cell phones. We were writing each other here and there. I didn't really think anything of it. I didn't mind it at all. I, I was just doing other things and thought it was cool that she was spending the summer in the Pacific Northwest. And one night I had a dream. It was a Sunday night and I could see her with, with somebody else and they were together and they were in a bed and I woke up and I knew it wasn't a dream. It was like I was seeing real time. I just knew it. I mean, I knew I wasn't dreaming. And I, so I felt so bad because I was like, oh, no, she's with another person. That's that means like this isn't going to work out. And, and then I was like, but there's no logic in that because there's no reason to believe that. But I just knew I just knew the dream was real. And when we when we met back up, she's like, yeah, I think, you know, we need to break up. And I was like, yeah, I kind of felt that coming. And that was it. And we were about to part. And I, I, I turned around and said, but can't you just tell me why we're, <laughs> you know, the real reason why we're breaking up? And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, you know, you met somebody. And apparently nobody else knew but her and this other person. She hadn't told anybody. So she's like just staring at me, like not opening up yet. And I'm like, I know. I said, I, I saw it in a dream. It was, uh, I said the, the exact time and date of when I thought it happened. And then she just like turned white like a ghost. She was like, how do you know that? Nobody, nobody else knows that. I'm like, I don't know. It just happened. Now, I tell a story like that and uh, uh, people think that I, I'm psychic, but I don't have any ability to do that at will that I know of or that uh, that I can recall. So th there's been moments like that, that now I, I start to rethink dreams altogether and wondering how is that possible? How is it possible to see what was going on in a remote place from where I was? And is it possible to, to do it at will? And I, you know, I started looking into that a little bit, but then I got rerouted when I met my spiritual guide because he helped help me uh, 
put my energy towards something deeper than than one particular occult power or something like that. So so I just I just left it. But here and there, dreams have come with special messages. And sometimes they've been prophetic, not not about what's going on now, but what's coming. I had this other dream that I tell that was just so random. I, I woke up and in the dream, it was so vivid. I was driving my brother's truck at the time down a highway to our, towards our house at night. And then everything turned dark in front of me. And then some police headlights were, were coming towards me. And that was it. Two days later, my car won't start and I have to go to Indiana for something. So I asked my brother if I can borrow his truck. On the way back in the middle of the night, I blow a fuse on the dashboard, all the lights go out and the headlights go out. And then in the next instant, there's a police officer behind me. And it was exactly as my dream, but you know, it didn't prevent anything. It didn't mean much for my life just that I blew a fuse and then an officer came and helped me. But again, it showed me that somewhere in our mind or in our subconscious, we have access to the future. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it in, in an ordinary way that, I, that something could be shown to us. Happened one other time too when I had to meet a doctor that I was going to shadow for some time when I was in school. And there, there was be, this was before websites and stuff like that, and and I had a dream about her. And when we met, she was the exact person in the dream, and even I had no idea what she looked like. So I think that there are four meaning potential meanings for dreams. There's lots of different interpretations about dreams, and trying to pin it down to one reason why we dream would be like trying to determine what's the one feeling life is like. Well, waking life. Waking life has all different kinds of experiences and all different kinds of meaning to different people. Neuroscientists say that part of the reason why we dream is to integrate information. So when we're making memories, when we're having experiences, those memories first get stored in the hippocampus. And then in MRI studies of people's brains at night, you can see activity going from the hippocampus to the cerebral cortex in the front where we develop knowledge and cognition and understanding. So it seems as though part of the neurological function of dreams is to integrate information into other regions of the brain. This has also been observed in mice. After teaching mice how to find cheese in a maze and observing and recording what parts of the brain are active during that process, you can see when the mice are sleeping, those same regions of the brain highlight again from the hippocampus to other sections. Seems to be mimicking the maze and, and sometimes those, um, those impulses, that activity actually works in reverse, which may mean that time isn't the way that it really is, or the way we perceive it is, is uh, different than the, the way it actually could be. And maybe the flowing of time is also just a function of our 
waking consciousness or waking brains. Now in psychology and spirituality, I think you could you could probably categorize the meaning of dreams in four ways. One is that they're just random. At least part of it has to be random. That that's not to say there's there's no meaning, but that there's the possibility that you just throw a bunch of memories and experiences together into like a word generator and you just get get a bunch of stuff back. That doesn't mean that something meaningful or creative couldn't come out of that. But it's not like a prophetic dream like I was describing before. There was an experiment done by um by notable philosopher Daniel Dennett called um party game with of psychoanalysis and the way this game works and he he's introduced it to groups or companies uh, or other organizations you have one person be the dream guesser and step out of the room and that person believes that everyone else in the room is going to listen to one person's recent dream and then the dream guesser is going to come back in and going to try to guess the plot of the dream through a series of like a game of 20 questions just yes or no questions while in reality no one's sharing a dream while the dream guesser's out they're all instructed to say either yes or no depending on whether or not the question ends with the last word of the question with a letter that's in the first half of the alphabet in which case they'll say yes to that question or if it's beyond that with the last letter in the last word then they'll say no and this will go on and almost in every experiment the dream guesser is building up this creative wild dream and and then in the end thinks here she thinks you know they got a clear picture of of uh, what what happened in the person's dream sequence and then they come to find out no this is just all your own subconscious creating stuff randomly based on random yes yes and no so it's like zero and ones in the matrix so this is kind of cool because because it, it does make sense like we we also inject meaning to things you know we we uh we draw lines and we have confirmation bias and, and so on but i also think it's cool just the idea that that dreams are just a hodgepodge of experiences and and later on we may f- find something meaningful to it and since we forget these a lot you know these random dreams often people say you know they don't recall a lot of people will say they don't dream at all but but we know that's not true for the most part unless there's a brain injury before i go a little further people before the industrial revolution used to remember their dreams a lot more uh research suggests probably because there wasn't as much entertainment and so many things to distract ourselves with themselves with when they w- woke up and people probably looked forward to dreaming at night in the way that we look forward to other types of entertainment so anyways the randomness of dreams and when we don't remember them we often we also don't remember them because they're so random they don't make any sense in our waking life i think that's another reason why we forget a lot of dreams there's also research that's been done that shows if there's high frequency activity in the posterior part of the brain that corresponds to people recalling their dreams and if it's low frequency activity in that part of the brain then people won't remember so there's something also with the electrical activity that seems to influence whether or not we'll recall it 
But the random ones I think are harder to recall. And I think this could could account for some experiences of deja vu. So if you don't remember what you dreamed and then you actually experience something like it, and especially because you're, you know, you're probably dreaming about things related to what's coming up or what you're worried about or what you've already been dealing with. So when it comes up in some way in waking life, it feels as though um, you've experienced it before because you, you actually have, you just don't remember it. It would be like if I asked you, what did you have for dinner three weeks ago on a particular day? You probably don't remember. But if I told you what it was, you would remember. You would feel feel some relationship to that. So Dennett's saying with this game experiment that, you know, three things are at play here. Hopes, fears, and expectations. And that leads to another type of dream meaning that that there is something being communicated from our subconscious. This is where psychologists like Carl Jung come in, trying to find the underlying fear or hope or fantasy or expectation. So our subconscious communicating to us or in some spiritual traditions, they think that it's one way that the soul communicates or um, those who believe in a higher power may believe that the higher powers communicating messages to the conscious mind. But it's just interesting to note that there is so much going on that we're not conscious of, so much so that it's possible that that we may be making decisions before we're conscious of it, like we talked about in the free will meeting once in the past. Then there are healing dreams. So a lot of psychologists to this day also would hypothesize that a lot of dreams are working out issues, psychological issues, like healing from things or trying to fulfill deeper desires to play out fantasies that could not be played out in waking life without more consequences. And also, we know that when you're in deep sleep, much of our physiological healing takes place during deep sleep. So it's thought that in REM sleep, rapid eye movement, when we're dreaming more, that psychological healing is taking place. Maybe not in every dream, but in a lot of dreams. And then the last one is prophetic dreams. I've had dreams where I'm seeing things two days ahead or seeing things remotely or for myself, rarely for something larger. But my dad, for instance, has had dreams that seem to be more in tune with the collective. And he's also had prophetic dreams that were much more impactful than my dashboard light going out. He had a dream in Japan, I think it is where he was when he was in the Navy, that his grandfather came to him and said goodbye to him in the dream. And when he woke up, he knew for sure that his grandfather had passed. And that was actually him, his spirit coming to 
to say goodbye, even though there was nothing, no, nothing health-wise going on with my great-grandfather at the time. And then sure enough, a day or two later, a telegram came to his ship with the message that his grandfather had passed. He also had something similar when his mom was about to pass, my grandmother. He was here in Illinois, she was in California, and he wanted to find a way to move to California to be somewhere in the, in the area. He didn't know where that would be. And he had a dream that his mom came to him. This was before she passed. She brought a rose to him, handed him a rose, and he felt that was uh, 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 prophetic in, in terms of where he needed to go. And he found a job in Santa Rosa, the city of roses. And like that, he, he, he's had some, some really wild prophetic moments from his dreams that he shared with me and shares, shares with me before they, before they unfold. That's how I, you know, have come to, to trust what he has to say sometimes when he has a dream. He had a dream of a part of New Mexico that he had never been to, never heard of, never seen, nor I. Uh, the Bistina wilderness way up in a remote part of the northwest corner of New Mexico. The next day he told me, this dream is so vivid, I know it's going to have meaning for one of us at some point. And that same day, um, a photographer started um, following me online and, and uh, the next image that she shared was of that national mo monument which i'd never seen before I showed my dad i said is this it he's like yeah that's it and um and then he saw a movie the next day some movie about aliens in new mexico or something like that and it, some was shot in that forest and that's how he figured out for sure that's what he was dreaming about we still have yet to find out what all that means that's why i say sometimes a dream comes and it stays with you it doesn't leave you, and the message continues to unfold over time. And then my mom has some of this too, and other people on her side of the family. My great aunt had a dream some years back about my grandmother, her, her younger sister. And then she told my mom, and my mom heard twice that same day. I sometimes get the events a little, little off, but I think this is how it went down. Then my mom heard the song Louise performed by Bonnie Raitt twice on the radio that day after never hearing that song in her life. Louise is my grandmother's name. And the song is about how she died in, in, in a wrongful way. And that's actually what happened to my grandmother. She, she was uh, the victim of, uh, of malpractice that was covered up and uh, leaked to the press months later and then took a uh, many year legal battle to set the record straight. And then my mom told me, you know, Aunt Jess had this dream about my mom and, and now I'm hearing this song and I, and she's like, do you know anything about this song? Or have you ever heard this song? And I'm like, no, I never heard of that song. And we were at the airport. And after she tells me this, I'm with my brother, we're holding our instruments. And a lady comes up to us after I get off the phone with my mom and she says, you guys play music. Well, let me tell you one song you got to learn. It's called Louise by Bonnie Ray. 
And we were just like, what the heck is going on? You know, these dreams, dreams are amazing. And if you've had these recurring nightmares, I've, I've heard lots of similar experiences. I've also, in a smaller way, I've, I've had recurring <laughs> nightmares, like about failing a test. And I, I'd have that dream for like 10 years straight. But it, but it's uncomfortable. So, but a couple things that have worked for me, I've shared with other people uh, or patients, and they've reported back that it's been helpful too. The gratitude journal. There's lots of research that shows if you keep your gratitude journal at night, which is, for those who aren't familiar, writing about three positive experiences from the day. If you do that at the end of the day. It research shows that it improves the, the content or the quality of people's dreams. So if you're struggling to get through a night without nightmares, I would I would recommend that. You may also want to look into lucid dreaming and some of the things that help with lucid dreaming. I used to practice that and experiment with that. I had a lucid dream a few weeks ago where I met with several people from different parts of parts and times of my life and I'm looking at them I'm like there's no way you three would ever be in the same place so I must be dreaming and then I became lucid but I didn't wake up from the dream so then I started to fly and we were in some Eastern European city at the time so I flew up to the top of this Gothic cathedral and I sat up there just marveling at how real a dream is and I've said before that the reason we take dreams to be real is because the simulation is so good, not because a certain part of our brain is turned off. There is global activity in the brain during during dreams. And I grabbed a loose brick from this cathedral and I just held it in my hand during this lucid dream. And I was like, how amazing is this? It feels real. Matter feels real. Space feels real. Time feels real. But it's all an illusion. It's all just a projection of my mind or subconscious. I think the simplest way to have to spark a lucid dream is to either with your watch or with your cell phone, program it to every hour or so to send a notification or to beep and then ask yourself if you're dreaming. Eventually this will happen in your dream and you'll be able to become lucid and and maybe redirect the plot of, of what's going on or escape or pursue something else in your dreams. I think that could be helpful for people who have crippling or terrifying nightmares. I also experience like if, if I'm somewhat lucid in a dream that many of the limitations that I have or many insecurities that I, I may struggle with throughout my life, they manifest there in the dream. And so I can't even always do things like fly in a dream if I'm lucid because I doubt that I can and I feel the pull of gravity and it's kind of funky to, to experience. You know, I mean, this kind of also speaks to something some of us talked about before in that if spirituality is about waking up, waking up to, to reality, then a bad dream, you know, unhappiness or misfortune in your life is more likely to trigger that spontaneous awakening. Just like if you're having a really bad dream, you might just suddenly wake up. And if you're having a beautiful dream, 
then you're more, you, you want to stay in the dream. So for those who are like, I want to wake up, then it, it you know, it's wise to just accept your circumstances and, tr and try to transcend them. But since we are asleep for like up to eight hours a day, that's a third of our life, maybe 30 plus years if you live to be up towards a hundred. That for me, I want I want to live in my dreams. I, I want to bring back as many dreams as I can and, and be awake also with my dreams a part of me because that's just too much of life to not be present for. But I, I think that there's so much wisdom, untapped wisdom from this side of our psyche. I do think it can be helpful to keep a dream journal. I've had, I've been more disciplined with this at different times in my life, less so now. But it was always rewarding to have uh, a journal right next to my head or ne next to my bed ready to write in as soon as I wake up. I don't do it as much because I think I've gotten better just at remembering and spending time with my dream before I move into my day. And I've never really been big on writing things down anyway. It, it, it feels that there's something unnatural for, for me about it. I think partly because of playing music and, and instead of journaling, I would create melodies. And, and I think like I, I store things in an auditory way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I speak, I'm, um, you know, I, I work with sound. I think that's like the way that I learn to a great extent. I prefer audiobooks than to, uh, physical books. Although I like to hold physical books. I like, uh, I like a book of poetry so I can just like read poems, but, but I'm, I'm a really auditory learner, I think. So yeah, it, it depends. But I had a, another stretch of time where I taped um, a voice activated microphone recorder above me in my bed so that anytime I woke, I could just start speaking my dream. I started trained myself to just narrate my dreams. No picking up a pen or finding the book. Just as soon as, as you become aware that you're awake, start telling the dream. And then I would listen back in the morning and be like, oh my God, what the heck was I dreaming that night? Strange stuff. I've also had some dreams after, during grieving the loss of a pet where the pet came and maybe not hugged me, but had gave me some sort of uh, signal that they're okay. And, and then my dog once started flying after that. And then I felt a little bit more release. I want to share this, this thought about the feelings that we have because dreams are bring up more feelings and it's, it's hard to feel sometime. Sometimes a friend of mine was just saying that one of the epidemics of our culture is not allowing people to feel. There's just so much taboo around feeling and, and we judge ourselves and we are impatient with ourselves, with our feelings. One of the reflections from the book that I was talking about is kind of about this. I shared this recently. If I could make peace with myself, it would not involve eliminating emotion. It would involve allowing emotion. 
That's what people sense as odd calmness, the non-resistance. So many emotional reactions are not expressions of feeling, but rejections of feeling, attempts to deny its arrival or demand immediate departure. To remain open and curious in the rhythm of each beat of energy is to behold its already dispersing beauty and absorb the wisdom of every fading color and rarity. And the reason why I say the beauty and wisdom is because it's impermanent. The way that we feel in our loss can't stay that way. And to push it away or to rush through it is almost to not honor that mood, that weather, that transition, you know, and, and all the wisdom that it shows us about how connections matter, not just human connections, but connection to nature and to life. And what would be different if we just said, I'm going to feel this, not I'm going to act a certain way or I'm going to act angry or I'm going to shout. No, that I'm going to pay attention to the energy. So that's what I mean by mo many of our reactions are rejections. Somebody shouting when they're angry is not the anger. It's the demand for relief from the anger. It's not, that's not feeling anger. Feeling anger would be, you know, being with yourself and experiencing it or being sad is an energy. Demanding somebody change so that your sadness goes away is not the sadness, that's the behavior, right? So yeah, peace to me isn't this state where there's nothing arising anymore. It's, that'd be like saying that there's only peace on a sunny day or the only peaceful weather is sunny weather. But a sunset is really beautiful when it has a, a lot of colors, a lot of clouds, and it's impermanent, it's ephemeral. Same with all of our feelings and same with all of our dreams. So to be pre just to be more present is to honor the meaning of uh, different connections. Do you think that people in your dream are you? It's interesting to remember that when you wake up, where does all the time and space and people go? It's all inside of you. You know, you are, obviously, you are the other characters in the dream. Your subconscious is projecting them. In the Upanishads of India, these ancient part of the four Vedas, there's a description of the, the mind and the creation of the universe as the way the spider spins its web. The spider from its saliva creates the web and then enters into the web to live its life until it swallows the web back into itself. Similarly, the Upanishads say that the universe, everything is a dream, God's dream or the self, the dream of the self, the one dreamer. And it only appears as though there's multiplicity. In a more practical sense, I had a dream about one of my coworkers at the time that she was in a car accident. I was really worried. So I go talk to her. I'm like, hey, at this dream where you got into a car accident and I'm just concerned about you. So make sure you drive safe out there. And she leans in and she says, you do know your dreams are about you, don't you? That's just her humor, though, too. And we cracked up. 
So it, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to know when. But I do think, like in in my case, the prophetic dreams I had. When I look back, and I and I reflect on those compared to the ones where like, oh God, I hope that's not something that's going to happen. There was a difference. I mean, honestly, I felt a difference when I had a dream that was prophetic, and I had a dream that was stressful. I know there's a difference. It's hard to elucidate what that difference is, but I think with more awareness, we can we can sort of separate that. Like this is just me and my stress and my fears. I think if you journal about your dreams and you journal about your waking experiences, you can kind of get a sense. And you know, we've talked about that a little bit too. We know what we're stressed out about. We know what our hopes and our expectations and our fears are. But if we're already paying attention to those things and allowing ourselves to feel through those experiences, it, it can help us differentiate too. Thank you. I don't know if you know anything about sleepwalking and dreams. Not not a lot. Thanks for sharing that, Luann. Not a lot other than having a roommate who sleepwalked. Maybe those who have more knowledge of this can add add in the comments about it. But I had a I had a roommate multiple years in college that would sleepwalk quite frequently. And it was kind of scary. He would he would get up in the middle of the night and he would go work for a while at his computer. And this computer would be off, but he would be like working on his paper on the computer that I would like wake up because he's making all this noise, moving papers around and then typing. And then he would finish in like a half hour and then go back to his bed, but, and then not recall it at all in the morning. Yeah. Very strange. What I was always worried about was him going to the bathroom. Actually, he would sleepwalk to the air conditioner and think that's the bathroom. I had, to, I had to keep the, when we were in dorms together, I had to make sure I was on the top bunk for that very reason. <laughs> I'd like to bring this close to a conclusion so we can close with a, a, a little mindful practice, but I wanted to add that there's a book that's really impacted me spiritually called Yoga Vasishta. It's an ancient like 500 page manual uh, that's thousands of years old that was the instructions of a sage named Vasishta to the king at the time of a part of northern India, Rama. You may have heard of the Ramayana. It's one of the two ancient epics of India. There's a side book called Yoga Vasishta. It's of Rama's guru, a sage. And in it is a collection of stories. You can just read any story. Vasishta is telling story after story to describe the nature of consciousness. It's not something that you can ever just like read through and get, but you can take one story and you can contemplate it for a while. It's sort of like probably where the people who wrote The Matrix got ideas for a movie like that. There's one story called the story of Leela. Leela means divine play. She was a, a queen married to Padma, the king, and she, they loved each other so much, she started to get anxiety in her dreams about him passing before her. And she thought, I don't, I don't know how I would live if he died first. She wanted to die first. So she 
practiced some austerities until a goddess appeared to her, Saraswati, and asked, what two wishes would you like to have? And she said, one, I'd like for my husband's soul to always be with me if he dies before me. And two, I'd like for you to appear if I ever call on you. And then, and she blesses her to have those two wishes granted. And when her husband dies, Saraswati appears and says, put these specific flowers on the body and his spirit will always be in this place. So she does that. But after some time, she's like, I don't feel his spirit. I don't see him anywhere. I don't, he just, he's just dead to me. And, she, and she's, ter- you know, feeling terrible and asks Saraswati to come back. And she comes back and she's like, well, you, you can't see him because you're using your ordinary vision. She starts to teach her how to meditate. And then Leela goes deeper into other levels of her consciousness through meditation. And she sees her husband sitting on a throne in like another dimension. And there are other people who are on the court who are still alive. So she's thinking, wait a minute, either that's fake or this is fake. And then a whole adventure unfolds where Leela starts traveling through different planes of existence and finds how much of our identity is just projections of consciousness. And they go on this wild adventure together, but ultimately in spirit, her and um, the king are reunited. But Vasishta writes this in such a fantasiful way that he's actually the king, her husband. Vasishta himself, who's telling this to Rama, reincarnates as the king. He had a wish that he was a king once upon a time and reincarnated as Padma, her husband. And they don't even realize it because they don't remember their past lives in the story. So it's about dreams and past lives. But the whole book is like this. And these stories are just just wildly amazing. So if if you're interested, you can check that out. The whole reason I brought this up is that Vasishta gives four instructions to Rama for transcending the illusions and attaining to liberation. And these four I've reflected on since my time in India for the past 15, 20 years. One is contentment. It's called santosha in yoga. It means whatever happens, make peace with it. Make peace with it, develop equanimity. It's like when my teacher said, if you could just be cheerful in every situation, that doesn't mean feel cheerful, respond cheerfully to everything that happens in life, everything will come to you. And for me, it's like, wow, that's that's a, a more practical path for me than, you know, like sitting in the lotus posture for 14 hours a day or whatever. So so that resonates with me. Another one is self-control. In the book, he just says shanti, which mean, literally means peace. But in this case, it means being able to control the five senses. Obviously, when somebody is constantly infatuated with taste and vision and touch and all that, they're not going to be able to turn the senses inward and perceive the self. So that's the second one. The third one is called vichara, specifically atma vichara, which simply means inquire, self-inquiry. Ask again and again, who am I and what is true until you get to the bedrock of truth. It's the path of knowledge, jnana. This is what happened with great sages like 
Brahmana Maharshi or um, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, who has a book called I Am That. Just making discernments between the real and unreal. And then the last one is satsang. Satsanga means, sangha means company or association. Sat means truth. So it indicates to, to have the company of the wise just by being around elevated souls, one's consciousness elevates. And you can't always be around people of in higher states of consciousness, but you can associate with their words, their teachings, the books, the wisdom, the collective wisdom of previous masters. And I, and I love those four instructions. And it says, take to all four if you can, if not, one is enough. We'll stop there. Prepare to do a practice. Take a moment to ground in your seat. Notice the sensation of sitting in a chair or on the floor, feeling the subtle pressure between your legs and the ground or the chair and your feet in the ground. Let the tiny facial muscles around your eyes relax. Let your shoulders relax. Place your hands in a comfortable position. Let your jaw relax. If your tongue is pressed against the roof of your mouth, try placing it behind your upper teeth. And bring your attention to your breathing. what it feels like to have air flowing in and out. You don't need to change it, but observe it more closely. Notice how your body expands and contracts. Open your mind. Let whatever's arising arise, whatever's departing depart. And when I say the word hope, notice what arises in your awareness. Our mind wants things. In meditation, we can just sit with that. Be the awareness, not the wanting. When I say fear, it may stir things up. 
there are things we don't want to happen that we worry about. But in meditation, you can be with it instead of trying to avoid it, prevent it, and to use up all that energy in the worry. In the meditation, just observe it. Be the witness, not the worry. When I say expectation, the mind has a sense of the way things ought to be, the way they ought to go. But in meditation, you pay attention to reality as it is. Again, bring your attention to your breathing. Listen to the sound of breathing as if you're listening to the ocean. Feel that rhythm of life. that peace is not a matter of stopping the waves. It's just allowing, it's just accepting, it's just a sense of equanimity. You can gradually resume your normal awareness. Again, feel yourself sitting in the chair on the floor. When you feel ready, you may slowly open your eyes and come back to the room.